Great Wall of China is truly an amazing engineering feat and an amazing uh, a feat of man in putting this thing together. I don't know if you know much of the history about the Great Wall of China, but I was doing some reading on it yesterday, and I was surprised to learn that it's 9,000 kilometers long. 9,000 kilometers. It was begun long before, centuries before the time of Christ even, and over the many centuries between this time and then, it has gone undergone extensions and different repairs and all kinds of things. And today, unfortunately, much of the wall is in disrepair, but there are sections of it that have been preserved. But 9,000 kilometers long, and you could imagine that if there was an invading force wanting to come into China back in the day, that this wall was there to keep those invading forces, those armies out. And you could think, 9,000 kilometers long, you're not going to go around it. It's some 20 feet thick in most sections. You can't go through it. It's 16 to 26 feet high with the big uh, ramparts and, and other fortresses on top and a huge wide walkway that armies could patrol up and down. So if there was an invading army coming in, they'd be able to spot it, seeing anyone trying to climb that wall is going to be easy pickings for that army that is above them. But you might be surprised to know that the wall has been conquered. The question is, how did they do it? Well, if you know a bit of Chinese history about the Great Wall of China, then you know how they did it. And they did it by bribing the gatekeeper. Didn't have to scale the walls. They bribed the gatekeeper. In 1644, uh, there was a general, a Chinese general, and uh, the Mongol armies, they made some briberies to this man and, and made and he made some allegiances and alliances with them that he would lead this gate open and the Mongol army could come right through and they did that. It was an army so large it took three days to pass through the gate. Huge forces coming in and taking over, literally taking over China. And so this man was paid off with all kinds of money, with territories, all kinds of things and he saved his own neck in the process. But this does have some spiritual implications for us and different applications that we can make from this. And we could think about, when we think about bribery, we can think about all of the allurements that Satan tries to give to us, tries to pass off on us. The allurements, allurements like you can think about Jesus when he's tempted in the wilderness by Satan. I'll give you these kingdoms. You can have this, you can have that. All of these different allurements that we are thankful that he did not take those. But Satan holds out allurements to us as well. Maybe it doesn't look like that. There's all kinds of things that glisten like gold in our world that we might want that we know we are not supposed to have. All kinds of things that might entertain us, all kinds of things that would tempt us, all kinds of things that would trip us up. All kinds of things that appeal to our natural inclinations, our natural nature to sin. And just as the Great Wall invasion was an inside job, so we could say that every single sin that we commit is an inside job. It comes from within us, out of our own hearts. James 1, 14 and 15, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when, is it, it, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. 
Yes, there are external forces that war against us, but we also have that war that is going on inside of us. And the question for us is, how do we fight? Well, the Apostle Paul gives us an outline here in verses 10 to 20 of a battle plan and how we can fight against the allurements of Satan, against all of his temptations. Jesus had opposition. We can see very early on in his ministry. He's tempted in the wilderness of Satan. He's, he's in the temples not, not long afterwards, and he has, he has opposition there as well. We can see opposition in the life of the Apostle Paul. We see that in Peter. We see that in everyone in the Bible, virtually. And we see that in our own hearts and lives. If we are Christians, if we are seeking to walk in ways that please the Lord, if we are seeking to live out the first five chapters of the book of Ephesians, then we can count on it. We are going to face opposition from our adversary. And we see that unfolding here in verses 10 to 20 in this battle plan that the apostle gives to us and how to combat our opposer. Now I want you to think back for a moment to the time when you first became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result... Maybe it was immediately, maybe it was over time, but you had peace. You had peace with God. Maybe not right away, but over, over the course of time, you had peace and you had joy in that relationship. And over time, you realize that because you are a child of God, you will receive an inheritance from God in heaven. But we also inherit one of the enemies of God or the great enemy of God in our time on this earth. And so we need to know, we need to be aware of the ways in which he seeks to trip us up in this world. Becoming a Christian, we have stepped out of darkness and we've stepped onto a battlefield. And whether we like it or not, some of us are not argumentative, we're not battlers by nature, but if you are a Christian, you are called to be a battler. You are called to fight. You are called to stand and withstand. Why? Well, It's because before we had a nature that was dominated by sin, we were sins of disobedience, as Ephesians 2 talks about. Sometimes unknowingly, perhaps unwittingly for most of us, but then we gave our hearts and we gave our lives to the Lord. We were transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And that began a war of natures within us. We now have two natures, a spiritual nature and that sin nature that are at war constantly inside of us. And that same grace that reconciles a person, a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl, that reconciles us to the Lord Jesus Christ, that same grace Satan is opposed to in our lives. And so we can read in the Westminster Confession in chapter 8.2, it says that, the Christian is in a continual and irreconcilable war. It's unavoidable, it's unending, and it's irreconcilable. As long as we are on this earth, it is unavoidable that we will be in this battle that we see unfolding. And we understand quickly in our Christian life that the Christian life is not a playground, it is a battleground. And so how are we going to fight? What tools can we use to do that? Well, this passage gives us some of those. And over the course of the next few weeks, we will look into this to uncover some of these different things. But as we are engaging in a battle, we need some military intelligence. We have to know who we are fighting against. No, No army is going to go into battle 
not knowing who they are opposing, not knowing where they are, not knowing some of their tactics. And that's what we see that the Apostle Paul in the Bible gives to us, tells us who our adversary is and tells us his tactics. And those are the first two points we're going to look at. We see our adversary introduced to us at the end of verse 11, the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Satan is our adversary, and his demons are his pals, and they are also our adversaries. And so the Bible refers to the devil by a lot of different names and descriptions. He is called the ruler of the demons in Luke, the ruler of this world in John, the god of this world in 2 Corinthians, the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians chapter 2. A lot of different ways to tell us who Satan is. And he's also identified as a roaring lion. We know that from Peter. As a tempter, the accuser, the spirit working in the sons of disobedience. 52 times in the Bible, he is called Satan, which means adversary. 35 times the devil, which means slanderer. A lot of different descriptions who tell us that tell us who our adversary is. He is a fallen archangel and he, is, he has fallen angels with him, the demons. Now, some don't believe in a literal devil. They might think that he's mythology. They might think that he's a lot more like the Easter Bunny or Santa Claus. They don't believe in the reality that there is a real person called the devil. But Jesus did. He believed in a literal, real, personal devil. He believed that he was real and he said that he was literal. He said that in Luke chapter 10, as we read, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. He saw this historical person fall like lightning in times past. He saw him plummet to the depths of hell. And then again in Isaiah 14 that we read, we see that the devil Satan usurped his will, wanting to usurp God. He was created as number two, but he wanted to be number one. And we see in that passage all of the I wills, I will, I will. He wanted to ascend to the throne of the Most High, I will. And then we see him cast down to the pit. That's what Jesus is referring to in Luke 10. I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning to the pit. And the second thing we learn are some of the devil's tactics. We see that he is a schemer. We see that in the second part of of verse 11. The schemes of the devil. He has schemes. He has tactics that he uses. Sinclair Ferguson says that we're often not aware how or why we face times of temptation, stress, conflict, and evil pressure. There is little doubt that some of our irrational thoughts, fears, and doubts should be traced to the ambush in which Satan hides. Again, he prowls about like a roaring lion. And if you can picture a lion about to pounce on its its prey, how cunning it is and how it might be so low to the ground, waiting for that prime opportunity to then pounce. And that is the picture that we get in the scriptures of of those who are, are being attacked by Satan. Now let's move on. We see that his schemes include temptations to do immoral things. We see that his schemes include a temptation towards us to worldliness, to pride, to division, to gossip and slander. 
All of these different things, and the list could go on and on and on. And I read a quote this week from John Calvin. It said, When Satan is called the God and ruler of this world, the strong man armed, the prince of the power of the air, the roaring lion, the object of all these descriptions is to make us more cautious and vigilant and more prepared for the contest, being forewarned of the constant presence of an enemy so daring, so powerful, so crafty, so relentless. Let us not allow ourselves to be overtaken by sloth or cowardice, but on the contrary, with minds aroused and ever on the alert, let us stand ready to resist, knowing that this warfare is terminated only by death. We will be in a constant war and struggle as long as we live. As we age, we might think, well, things will get easier as we age. And as we age, we might get a discount at Shoppers Drug Mart or somewhere else, but there will be no discount on the attacks of Satan. They will be continual. And I know some of the elderly folks here will attest to that. The temptations, perhaps, might change over time. The different ways in which we struggle in our minds and we're attacked might change, but it will always be there as long as we are on this side of heaven. It's terminated only by death. So Satan has schemes. And the Bible tells us that we are not to be ignorant of his schemes, not to be ignorant of his devices. So we are to fight. What do we fight with? Well, our passage tells us in verse 11 and 13 that we need to take up the armor of God. We need to put on the armor of God. We need to take up the armor of God. That is our provision that God gives to us, armor, holy armor. We're commanded to put on the whole armor of God, all of it, not just pieces of it, all of it. And we could think of the imagery here that Paul is using and we can think that he is in jail at this time And he's looking at these Roman soldiers and so he can pick apart their uniform and what they're wearing and he can apply these things for us uh, in a way that illustrates perfectly how we are to be battle ready in our time in this world. We are are to put on, and that carries with it the idea of a once for all, a permanence, that we put these things on permanently. It's not like a uniform that we take it off. Or we're playing sports, so we put on a bunch of equipment, and then when we're done playing sports, we take that off. No, we are to be dressed continually in this battle array, continually ready ready for the attacks that might come our way. So we need every piece. And it's interesting that as we go through the pieces here in a couple of weeks' time, that we'll see that there are no pieces for the back. Why would that be? Well, because we are supposed to stand and face and fight our enemy, not run from our enemy. We stand and we are battle ready, not run and retreat. And then we see our source of strength, and that's found for us in verse 10. Source of strength is, of course, it comes from the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And the Lord's strength is always sufficient for the battle. Our adversary is strong, but not strong enough for the Lord. The Lord's strength is always sufficient for the battle. We see David as he goes out to fight Goliath, that he's going in the strength of the Lord, the strength that the Lord had given him. Very interesting account is found in 2 Kings chapter 6. And I won't ask you to turn there, but Elijah is, uh, is serving the Lord and he had many men come against him. A great army came against him. 
He got up in the morning and his servant was there with him. His servant went outside and he looked around and he saw an army encompassed around Elijah, around his house. And he went and told him he was terrified. And what was, what was Elisha's response in 2 Kings 6, 16 and 17? He says, don't be afraid, the prophet answered, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elijah prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of his servant and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. He prays and he says, Lord, let him see the unseen. And the Lord allows the servant to see that. And what a comfort that would be to see all of the Lord of hosts, all of this company of the Lord's servants awaiting to do battle for Elijah. We're strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So we are aware of Satan and all of his tactics and devices that he is a strong enemy, but we also need to be aware of who our Lord is, that he is the Lord of hosts, that he is the Lord ready for battle. He is our strength. And so Satan and his demonic forces are an evil, powerful, invisible enemy to us. One that we can't stand against on our own power and strength. And so Martin Lord Jones says that though we realize that the power is so great and so terrible and so mighty, second only to the power of God himself, we still are exhorted not to be frightened. This is so because of the reality of the power that is at work in us. And that undergirds us. And so we don't need to fear. We don't need to cower in fear before our adversary. We simply need to go to God and do what he tells us to do in passages like this one. We don't need to fear because Jesus ultimately has won the war. And so we might be in skirmishes and battles. Jesus has won the war. Now with the rest of our time, I want to look at a couple of different reasons why I think this passage is of particular encouragement to us. And the first is that the attacks of Satan are actually a good thing. It's a good thing. Think about that for a minute. If you were not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you wouldn't be attacked, right? It's because we are on God's side and not on Satan's side that he does attack us. So we need to take heart that the conflict that we find ourselves in rather than being a denial of our faith, rather than making us give up and want to reject the faith, they show us the evidence of our faith. We're no longer on Satan's side. We are on Christ's side, on Christ's kingdom side. And having been placed in that kingdom, we now find ourselves in this intense battle and struggle against Satan, demonic forces, principalities, and powers. When we turn to Christ... Satan turns against us. And so that should be a comfort because we would much rather be an enemy of Satan than at enmity with God. Agreed? Absolutely. We would much rather that. There's a great book on spiritual warfare if you're interested. It is called The Christian in Complete Armor. It's written by William Gurnall, who is an English Puritan. It's a fabulous work. It is a classic Christian work. Absolutely. And the subtitle of his, of his book is The Saints' War Against the Devil. And he goes through this passage and he talks about it. It's uh, 800 and so pages long. And so it's not an easy read. 
Uh, but it is very much worthwhile to read that. There are also abridged versions of it and different condensed versions that you can pick up, but it's very worthwhile to pick that up. And he says, It is the image of God reflected in you that so enrages hell. It is this at which the demons hurl their mightiest weapons. It's a great quote. If we weren't believers, the attacks would not be so intense, but because we are, and we're seeking to live out uh, the gospel, that we have uh, this adversary against us. Satan has a hatred for God and God's people. That is us. And so that is a good thing. Again, we would rather be Satan's enemy than God's enemy. But secondly, secondly, we learn in the Bible Satan's playbook. Now we might think the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and that is part of Satan's playbook, certainly, but there's something else at work here that I think is very interesting for us to look upon uh, in the rest of our time together. We see his schemes taking place all the way back in the garden. We don't have time to turn there, but in Genesis chapter 3, we see the schemes of Satan unfolding in that passage. We see questioning God, questioning what God say as, 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 he, as he comes to Adam and Eve and he says, did God really say? Did God really say? Questioning what God had told them. And then if what God said was right, not only questioning what he said, but is what he said actually right? And so we see in verse 4, you will not surely die. In other words, God is a liar. God is lying to you, Adam and Eve. Don't believe him. Don't trust him. Mistrust what he is telling you. And then also questioning God's motives. We see that in verse 5. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so what happens? We all know the account. Adam and Eve sin plunge the human race into sin. We are born in trespasses and sins. Now, what was the result for Adam and Eve? Well, we could say that their relationship was affected. We could say that their family relationships were affected. Cain rose up and killed Abel, their own son. We could say that their work was affected. Instead of joy and satisfaction, enjoying the good gift that God had given them, it becomes toil and labor, labor, thistles and thorns. And most of all, their worship with God was affected. Their communion with God was affected as a result. And so way back in Genesis 3, Satan immediately attacks the marriage, immediately causes hatred and murder in the family, immediately poisons the process of work, which is a gift from God, immediately disrupts their worship and communion with God. Everything is broken. And now we turn the pages into the New Testament and we turn to a passage like this, in Ephesians 6, and it's very interesting to note the context of the passage that we read tonight. This passage on spiritual warfare, what is the context that we are reading this in? What does the book of Ephesians unfold for us? Well, if we go back, we will see that if we go back to chapter 4, it talks about church unity, so worship. If we look at chapter 5, he talks about marriage in the church, 
wives and husbands. If we look at chapter 6, he talks about children and parents, family relationships. And then he goes on to talk about employer and employee relationships, work. So we see marriage, family, work, and worship. Sounds a lot like Genesis 3, doesn't it? And now look at our society. Is there an attack on marriage and the family and the church, our worship? Look at your life. Is that not where most of the attacks come? Strife in your marriage, men abdicating their roles and responsibility, women taking it up, just like we saw in the garden. Strife in family relationships, work relationships, church relationships. All of these things we see repeated and repeated. Satan's playbook is unfolded for us right here in the book of Ephesians that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Satan is powerful and he has a personal hatred for each one of us. He wants to destroy these entities that God has given us, these, these gifts God has given us. And he has different plays in his playbook that he will play out to try to affect these different areas. And so it's personal. And Jesus taught us that. Jesus taught us as he had a conversation with Simon Peter toward the end of his ministry. He says, Satan has called for you. Satan has been asking for you that he may sift you like wheat. You see, it's personal. It's personal. Jesus taught us that Satan is a real person and he has a real personal hatred for God and God's people. But Jesus said, I've prayed for you that your faith fail not. He ever lives to make intercession for us. Satan is powerful. He is not all-powerful. Thankfully, God is. And we must always remember that Satan and his demonic forces were defeated at the cross. Just a couple of verses. The Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. And again, as we come to the end here, Calvin, another wonderful quote from him along these lines. Let us invoke the help of God and attempt nothing without trusting in him since it is his alone to supply counsel and strength and courage and arms, how can we stand and withstand the assaults of Satan? Well, we need to take up the armor of God in the strength of God, putting on the full armor. And it's to that armor that we will turn in a couple of weeks' time. Let's pray. Oh God, we do thank you that you do equip us that you give us the armor that we need, you give us your Holy Spirit, you give us your strength to battle. And so I pray that you would help us in the battle, that you would bind the hands of Satan in regards to marriages and family, that you would bind the hands of Satan in regards to poisoning relationships in the workplace and in the church. And we ask that you would bless us in Christ's name. Amen.